0: Electoral College, the way the Senate is set up, um, makes, you know, is are really anti-democratic institutions that are, are, are a heritage of slavery. Um, it is very, diff- I and mean, we have a Supreme Court with an entrenched super Republican, I mean conservative super for the next generation. Um, and and I think it's going to require all of our organizing and all of our getting out to, to you know, to participate in politics.
1: Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. International human rights lawyer Reed Brody has been dubbed the dictator hunter. He has helped pursue and bring to justice notorious dictators Augusto Pinochet of Chile. Jean-Claude Babydoc Duvalier of Haiti, and Yahya Jame of the Gambia. One dictator became a focus of Brody's global pursuit of justice. Hissen Habre was the former despot of the African nation of Chad, who ruled the country from 1982 until he was deposed in 1990. Habre, who was dubbed Africa's Pinochet, was accused of ordering the killing of 40,000 people and the torture of 200,000 people during his reign of terror. For 16 years, Reed Brody led a team of investigators, lawyers, and victims that spanned three continents as they pursued Habre. This global hunt culminated in Habre's trial in Senegal in 2016. Habré became the first former head of state to be convicted of crimes against humanity in the courts of another country. The dictator, who had lived in seaside luxury in Senegal for 25 years, was sentenced to life in prison. Habré died of COVID-19 last year during his imprisonment. Reid Brody has a new book, To Catch a Dictator, The Pursuit and Trial of Hissène Habré. Reid Brody, welcome to the Vermont Conversation.
0: Thank you very much, David.
1: Uh, Before we go to Africa, to the deserts, uh, the the edge of the Sahara, I want to talk about how you got started. You began your professional career uh, working in consumer protection in the New York (laughs) Attorney General's office, and then found yourself in the jungles of Nicaragua investigating the Contras. So walk us through your journey. As a human well, rights you're lawyer. You're
0: right. I mean, I was always, you know, I, I mean, I grew up uh, an activist. I was active in the Vietnam War against the Vietnam War. I always thought I was going to be a civil rights lawyer. Um, I was working uh, in a very progressive attorney general's office in New York State uh, for Bob Abrams, doing, doing con- very interesting consumer protection work. Um, but I, you know, I, and I had traveled around Latin America. Um, I had spent at one point four months hitchhiking around Latin America during the time of the dictatorships, and and um, you know got got a real dose of of, of reality in the mines of, of Potosi, Bolivia, you know, where the life expectancy is 39 years, and the you know as Bob Zillen said, the miners work almost for nothing. Um, and, um you know we want you know the people of my ilk and generation we were excited by the sandinista Revolution and I went down to see it uh, my a colleague of mine at the Attorney General's office was a um, had a brother who is a parish priest in in the hills of Nicaragua and um, the weekend that we went there um, uh, he had organized it happened to organize the a whole parish team from from the outlying hills uh, who had come into El Hicaro. and when we got there um, they were all oh my god there's these Americans who are friends of the priest and and they started telling us these stories about how the Contras uh, had come and 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 killed uh, one one woman's husband had burned down a A a cooperative farm had been wreaking havoc and, you know, they would shake you, take you by the arm, shake you. You've got to tell people in America what's going on here. And I just felt this huge, um, uh, uh, you know, responsibility to go back and tell people what Senor Reagan was doing in in our name. And um, I ended up uh, quitting my job at the attorney general's office, going back to Nicaragua. Uh, spending uh, four months really crisscrossing the war zones of Nicaragua and the back of pick of priest pickup trucks and stuff like that, um, as they would go to, say, mass and different things. And, and int- I interviewed, I forget how many now, but something like 150 eyewitnesses um, to, contra, uh, to attacks by the Contras. I uh, took sworn affidavits. I put it together in a report uh, that ended up on the front page of the New York Times. Um, and and uh, earned me an attack, direct attack from President Reagan. This was before it was usual for presidents to attack uh, people. Um, and but it act, actually ended up uh, helping to to uh, a congressional cutoff in, in aid to the contras. And, and so that's how I got started in international human rights. and And that was 1985 uh, when my report came out, and I've been doing, one form of international human rights or another particular, you know, ever since then. Um, Yeah.
1: So um, let's, uh, and, and I remember that era. Well, um, my, when I graduated college in the early eighties, many of my friends were traveling to Nicaragua to see the Sandinista revolution up close. What was this thing? And of course the, the kind of ominous backdrop to this was the Contra War funded by the US to essentially undermine and bring down the Sandinistas. Um, I did not go to Nicaragua. I went to Africa. So it may be the only time that I beat you to it. (laughs) I felt like, well, everybody's going there. So I want to go to Africa and went to South Africa and began uh, my career reporting from there instead talk about how Hisson habre uh, came onto your radar and who he
0: was so at a certain point uh, in 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 i'm going to start in, in 1998 um, i joined human rights watch just in time for the creation the rome conference that established the international criminal court Um, I happen to be talking to you actually today from The Hague, from the International Criminal Court. Um, And in October of that year, uh, a couple of months later, we got the news that uh, the former president, the former general of of Chile, Augusto Pinochet, had been arrested in London um, on a warrant from a Spanish judge for crimes allegedly committed 20 years earlier in Chile. And this was Really, the rubber hitting—you know—that we'd come back from Rome, the Rome Conference, thinking about this whole new world of international justice, and here all of a sudden you actually had—you know—the iconic uh, general of Latin America um, arrested on based on these principles. And um, I, Pinochet, General Pinochet, challenged his arrest before the British courts. He said, "You can't arrest me. I'm a former head of state." And I went off to London for Human Rights Watch, uh, thought it was gonna be a few days and ended up staying the better part of six months um, as the case went uh, to the British House of Lords, which was then the Supreme Court. Um, And when the House of Lords ruled that uh, Pinochet could be arrested uh, and uh, anywhere in the world, despite his status as a former head of state, um, you know, this was uh, this was a champagne moment for the human rights movement. and and we realized that you know we had a tool in international justice to bring to book people who seemed, you know out of the reach of justice.
1: And let me um, just ask yeah.
0: there was the Nuremberg trials, and
1: these mm-hmm. are the other iconic moment in which, you know, in this case, the Nazis, Nazi leaders, were tried in a court, um, well, that was in Germany, so it was not outside their country, but by international jurists. Was it ever done outside of Nuremberg, between Nuremberg and Pinochet, were foreign despots ever held to account?
0: Not really. I mean... um... Not outside of their country. Uh, um, I I just watched and I would recommend to people the movie called Argentina 1985, which is the really great uh, drama about the trial of the uh, in Argentina of the uh, leaders of the Argentine junta for for disappearances and human rights violations. But it had never been this principle of of universal jurisdiction. The only time it actually been applied was Adolf Eichmann. Adolf Eichmann was, you know, was was tried in Jerusalem um, for crimes that obviously were committed uh, in, you know, in in Germany and in Europe um, that predated even the state of Israel. And of course, he was kidnapped from from South America and brought. to. But it was the first time that you had a a, a ranking officer being being prosecuted on this principle. Pinochet was the first certainly the first time a former head of state uh, was 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 being prosecuted, and and
1: I mean it, it's um, really remarkable yeah. because when Nuremberg happens, which is what late 1940s, yeah, you have the the promise, the spectacle, and the promise that at long last there will be universal, you know, human rights will be respected universally. Those who violate them will be held to account, and yet it's fifty years between then and when. Pinochet yeah. is found to be liable outside of Chile.
0: Well, you know, it was it was it was the Cold War. Um, actually, let me. I I actually have to. I I think I was wrong because you had. So I mean, the Cold War, you know, created this paralysis in the international system um, that was only really broken with the fall of the Berlin Wall and then the genocide. Um, you know, in in I mean in yugoslavia and and in Rwanda. And actually, those do predate Pinochet by a few years. Um, uh, uh, and so you had um, the international community established a tribunal. Uh, for the former Yugoslavia, that eventually would try, you know, Slobodan Milosevic and others, and then after the genocide in Rwanda, it established a tribunal for Rwanda, and that's really when the momentum for the International Criminal Court came. So Pinochet came on, kind of on top of all of that, but yes, it was from the late '40s to the early '90s um, that this promise of never again would just be, you know, was just an empty promise.
1: And talk about why it's so important that these. Court cases, tribunals are held outside of the country where, you know, in and in, um, Habre's case in Chad or in Rwanda, I mean, so often these countries that have endured decades of atrocities, their judiciary is weakened to the point of being unable to hold the powerful to account,
0: Obviously, it's best if people can get be prosecuted and get a fair trial within their own country. But, you know, either for one reason or another, that tends to be uh, very difficult. I mean, we, we you know, in the case of Pinochet, before he left office, he kind of cre- he, he had he voted. Well, first of all, they the military voted themselves an amnesty. Um, and then he put clauses into the Constitution that basically protected him for life. And um, so, uh, you know, universal jurisdiction, which is the principle that um, some crimes are so heinous that they can be prosecuted anywhere in the world, is really the international law's answer um, to this spectacle of tyrants and torturers who cover themselves with impunity at home. And one of the one of the questions in, in at the hearings in London. Uh, was whether or not, you know, he, he could be prosecuted in Chile. Um, and uh, we brought actually a, uh, uh, a Chilean uh, lawyer, a very brave Chilean lawyer, Roberto Garaton, who had documented the crimes uh, 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 while they were happening in Chile. But we, we showed the court that there was no possibility at that point that he could be tried in Chile. Now, in fact, what happened in the Pinochet case um, is that the you know the Chilean justice system was so embarrassed by the fact that this you know why is England doing our why and Spain doing our work for us um, that uh, the judges in Chile began to look at ways around his 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 amnesty and they 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 came up actually with a ver- with a now in, in law, a very important legal theory, which is that people who are disappeared, that's a continuing crime. Um, and so it continues until the whereabouts of the disappeared people are uh, are clarified. And so actually, ultimately Pinochet was sent back to, 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 to Chile, um, but by that time, the Chilean justice system had sprung into action. And so that when Pinochet, in fact, as, as Roberto, my friend said, It was the arrest of Pinochet in London that allowed Chile to really complete its transition to democracy that had been kind of stillborn, kind of only, you know, half complete um, because of the impunity of of all of those people. And when when Pinochet finally was sent back to uh, Chile on what we thought was was spurious um, grounds of, of health. He, he began, the cases began to pile up. And when he died, he was being, tr- he was under pretrial detention for house arrest for, for, for a number of crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but to pick, but to kind of pick up the story, um, we realized that we had this tool and, and, and we were looking around, um, who else can we apply this to? And uh, a, a Chadian activist who was in New York came to see me and said, we have somebody who, you know, who's committed worse crimes than Pinochet. And, and, you know, can you help us do what the Chilean victims uh, had done by filing the cases in Spain and creating Pinochet's arrest? And what was really interesting to me about that was that Hisen Habre, the former dictator of Chad was now living in Senegal Um, and Senegal is a country that uh, it was the first country to ratify the statute of the International Criminal Court. It's a country that has a a strong tradition of a rule of law. And we thought, well, what? this is great, you know, because in the Pinochet case and, and, you know, you get there was this tendency that, okay, it's the Western countries that are going to be prosecuting. You know, here he had Spain and England prosecuting a Chilean. And at that time, Belgium was starting to prosecute Rwandans, and and it was it was, you know, this paradigm of, you know, countries of the north, you know, delivering justice for rulers of the south. Um, and here, in, with with the dictator of Chad now living in Senegal, we thought, okay, if Senegal would prosecute. Um, uh, uh, Hiss and Habre, then we would really be striking a blow for universal justice. And so that's how I got involved in the Habre case.
1: Say a little bit more about this problematic paradigm of, you know, the, um, in your case, a white American attorney working to take down an African dictator. Um, how do you, and of course, you describe Habre was more than happy to characterize it that way, that these, you know, the colonialists are coming to continually subjugate uh, us Africans. How did you navigate around that?
0: You know, at the beginning, I don't think I navigated around it well. I mean, I came in as this kind of, you know, yeah, a lawyer who would I mean, I, I, the, very quickly, the press labeled me a dictator hunter. Um, and, um, you know, that was not really very good for, for. I mean, it was nice for my son, who could say his father's a dictator hunter, but, um, you know, it wasn't really helpful for the case or for what we were trying to do. And and I think what, what we were able to do, I mean, it took, as we'll talk about, perhaps it took 16 years, finally, to get him to trial. And during that time, we were able really to get our act together and, 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 and look at how, you know, how things should be presented and, and, and most importantly, putting the victims, um, you know, forward. And, you know, I mean, the book begins and ends, as you know, with um, Suleiman Gengeng, who was a, 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 a victim who spent three and a half years in Habre's jails. And the book begins, you know, as people are dying all around him. Um, he, you know, he takes an oath that if he ever gets out, um, he will fight for justice, Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, a deeply religious civil servant. And, you know, he gets out and he creates a victim's association. Um, and, you know, we kind of very quickly realized that, you know, it has to be people like Suleiman or Clema Abayfuta who, um. Uh, Was uh, the the so-called grave digger who buried hundreds of his uh, former, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, jailmates uh, in a mass grave? You know, it had to be their story, and they had to be the protagonists. And 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 I think that was really something that distinguishes um, victim-driven cases. Um, uh, You know, that that you put the victims in the center of the action, and it not only creates a, a, a political dynamic that is harder to resist. It also has this emancipatory uh, quality, you know? I mean, the, 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 you know, the quest for justice as my friend Pam Yates says is justice. I mean, you put these people become actors in their own history. They turn the tables on a big They become the, you know, uh, uh, the protagonists.
1: So his son Habre himself is a very unlikely character to be the star of this horror film uh, that he is. And for that matter, few of the people listening to this um, will even know where Chad is. But Ronald Reagan knew where Chad was and knew who his son Habre was. Explain how Habre and Chad
0: came front and center onto the radar of American leaders. So Chad is this, you know, landlocked, a huge landlocked country in in Central Africa, just south of Libya. And that's the important thing here. When Reagan came into office, the enemy in that area was Muammar Gaddafi, who who Reagan described as the mad dog of the Middle East. And uh, Gaddafi's troops were actually occupying the north of Chad Um, and Alexander Haig. Uh, the then Secretary of state and and identified um, these troops in 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 uh, uh, occupying the north of Chad as the soft underbelly uh, of, uh, of 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 Moammar Gaddafi. and And he said, "We attack these people. We will bloody Gaddafi's nose. And so the u s. was looking for somebody to stand up as a bulwark against Muammar Gaddafi and they chose I mean to make a long story short this former you know desert warlord this Che Guevara Mao say tongue quoting warlord um to be the anti-Gaddafi
1: a, um, a guy who had about a couple hundred followers in the at, deserts at, of Chad at
0: a certain point i mean in the interim, he became prime minister. He was then started a civil war that bloodied the capital for a year, and then he went back into the desert. Um, but the U.S. basically put its money on Habre, even though at the time he had already had a very serious reputation uh, for 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 atrocities. Um, and Ronald Reagan uh, brought, I mean, the first covert operation of the Reagan administration before. The Contras in Nicaragua, before Jonas Savimbi in Angola, was bringing to power Hissen Habre in Chad. And the US supported him from 1982 to 1990. Um, even as, you know, even as the atrocities mounted, um, he defeat with US and, and then the French were brought along for the ride because uh, they were, um, uh, and the, the, then the French and the US supported Habre. Um, he defeated the Libyans, Uh, Habre um, uh, was received with honors on the 14th of July in France. He was received uh, at the White House uh, with Ronald Reagan. Um, You know, he had, in the words of of, uh, the U.S. ambassadors to Chad at the time, he had served up uh, Gaddafi's head on a silver platter, and he was now the hero. And and he was welcomed. You know, it was quite a transformation from this desert warlord um to, you know, uh, Western supported
1: uh, president, habre is driven out in a coup uh, by his successor uh, over despite the best efforts of Americans to rush weapons to prop him up, uh, and then flees to Senegal. what? So why of the various despots who were roaming the earth and enjoying luxurious exiles? Uh, do you settle on? Habre as the guy who you can begin to test this idea of universal jurisdiction.
0: So actually, you know, in this, in this post-Pinochet period where the human rights movement is really in effervescence, we're looking at who's going to be the next Pinochet. We're having these meetings with Amnesty International, other groups. And I actually, uh, you know, I had a a wall map, a map on the wall of my office, and I asked everybody at Human Rights Watch to come and pin up their favorite torturers and dictators, and we did like a real mapping exercise. What interested us about the Habre case was that he he was in Senegal, uh, so it was an Africa-Africa situation, that Senegal actually had the laws in place to prosecute him, and we didn't see any reason, I mean, you know you never expect to win i mean with pinochet i always say that before pinochet and i'd worked on all these cases with the center for constitutional rights and others trying to stop wars and you know and the contra war and i was always used to being right and losing um and with pinochet we actually won and so you know you realize that you can win cases and so we were looking for a case that we could win and that could you know, strengthen the precedent of universal jurisdiction. And we thought, well, let's try it. Um, and um, uh, I sent um, uh, actually I had some law students uh, actually go to Chad. And and that's where they met Suleiman uh, Gengeng. Um, and Suleiman, when he had come out of prison, had um, taken seven had made files on seven hundred and ninety two victims. Um, and you know it was it. He had kept these files under uh, the bed in his house, um, you know, for, for like ten years, and then waiting for, for the moment, kind of, but, you know that my students, um, uh, uh, you know, came to went to Chad and got these and got these files, and um, they, you know, the victims' association was and Suleiman were thrilled, and and so we we began. We created, of course, the dictator in Chad now living across the continent in Senegal. So we had to organize in two countries, um, a team, um, and we brought the Chadian victims to Senegal. Now under the French legal system, very importantly, under the French legal system, victims can go directly to the court. You don't need to ask the state attorney general, the state prosecutor to file a case. So victims can file directly with the court. And so in this very carefully timed and and, and kept secret operation, uh, we brought these Chadian victims to Senegal um, to file a complaint uh, a- against Hissen Habre. Hmm. Reed, I want to talk
1: about your own involvement in this case. Uh, it spanned almost two decades. You describe in your book how your own obsession uh, was uh, aggravating everyone closest to you from your employer, Human Rights Watch, which was uh, supporting your efforts, um, pursuing Habre around the world. Uh, you talk about the toll it took on your own marriage. Why did it hold your attention in this way and take over your life?
0: You know, at, at first you you start a case like this and you're doing it for, you know, an abstract principle. And then you become friends with everybody. You become friends with Suleiman Gengeng. You become friends with you know, Jacqueline Mudena, the Chadian, victim's Chadian lawyer, who this woman who um, survived an assassination attempt by one of Habre's former accomplices, who she was suing before the Chadian courts, who had a grenade thrown at her uh, and who survived and who actually went on to, to you know, prosecute these cases uh, with with shrapnel in her leg you become friends with these people and you feel like they have placed their trust in you. And then, you know, the longer you do it, the more it becomes a test for yourself. I mean, you feel like you can't really for them and for you, you can't give up. And I mean, there was a time, you know, I, I, I mean, I describe in the book, you know, that, um, you know, each time I would go to my son was born just around the time that, we got Habre arrested for the first time, and and I would measure the our progress in the Habre case by by his life. You know, so we we got him arrested when Habre was born. Case was thrown out when he was one. We went to Belgium, uh, uh you know, when when he was five. And and I would tell this story when I would go to Chad because, of course, you 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 tell store personal stories to make connections with people, and so and also actually many of the victims who would stay at our house in in New York or who stayed at our house when we lived in Belgium, Uh, they knew my family. Um, But, you know, it becomes, you know, it, it just becomes a personal challenge. It becomes something that you, you know, you feel like you owe it both to yourself, to history and to the victims and it becomes very hard to give up.
1: So talk about what it was like to finally face the object of your pursuit, Hisan Habre, in the courts in Senegal. When was it? And what was the experience
0: like for you? So, you know, we filed the case in 2000. There are so many, we went to pretty much every court in the world. The case bounced back between the courts of uh, Senegal, the courts of Belgium, the African Union, the UN, the international court of justice the world court and finally um, you know because of all of this work because of the tenacity and obsession not clearly not just of me i want to say i mean people like Suleiman and clement who basically also gave, and jacqueline who also gave their lives to this case um, we were able to build the political Will um, so that finally Senegal and Africa and the African Union agreed to establish a special court in Senegal to prosecute Habré. And so, July twentieth, two thousand fifteen, my birthday, um, you know, the trial starts. And and you know, Habré did pretty much everything to try to prevent the trial. I mean, he obviously the intimidation. Um, he he pretended. Falsely to be having his lawyers claimed on the eve of the trial that he had these heart attacks. Um, his supporters broke into the courtroom and tried to disrupt proceedings. Habre himself had to actually be brought in, kicking and screaming, um, to the court. Um, but in the end, he couldn't stop the trial. And, and, and you know, for me. It was just—I mean, every day that the trial happened, I would go into court and I would, you know, silently like pump my fists. I cannot believe it. You know, he is actually here, um, and and the trial itself uh, uh, was very dramatic, um, particularly the witnesses. I mean, so many of the witnesses—Suleiman, but many others. There was, for instance, there was a um, uh, uh, one of the victims. Of sexual slavery. I mean, Habre had actually sent women to serve as sexual slaves in his army. And the big bombshell of the trial was actually the sexual violence. And, 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 and one of the women who had been sent as a sexual slave came and testified. And, and she said, You know, I feel so proud to be here today. This man who's sitting there. He could, he he was the most powerful man in Chad. And now I'm talking and he has to listen to me. And witness after witness made that kind of a statement, um, you know, that that um, they had and it was so cathartic. Um, a woman testified that Habre had uh, personally uh, raped her. Um, uh, other victims came, and, and you know they 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 looked Habre in the face. I mean, you know, a French trial is very different. The 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 choreography of a French trial is is somewhat different. Um, but you know, they would look at Habre and say, "You," and 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 you know, they would point at him. And Habre was, I have to say, the entire trial. Habre didn't look at anybody. He he put on sunglasses. Um, he had a turban, uh, and basically he sat. I mean, after the outbreaks in the beginning and and also at the end, um, he basically refused to engage. He refused to testify, which, of course, is his right. Um, He refused to look at witnesses. Um, He just sat there uh, silently, which is too bad, actually, because it would have been great to hear his story um, and also to hear about the people who were supporting him. but it was a very dramatic trial. And, and one of the reasons that all these people, I mean, these women in particular, who broke their silence um, to come and testify, the reason they did it was because they were part of a team. I mean, that, that's really um, a, a very, you know, we the victims were parties to the trial. Uh, again, French legal system, victims are civil parties to the trial. Uh, but for 20 years, we had built a team. And these women who testified were all people who had confidence in in Jacqueline, the Chadian lawyer who had confidence in me. And I think that's a main reason why they agreed to get on an airplane, go to, a, you know, go to a country that they had never been to, uh, many of them traveling for the first time, um, go under the glare. This was a televised trial um, and, and actually tell their stories. And I felt and, and Jacqueline went back to. To to Senegal from, from Senegal to Chad during the trial to you know g- give them confidence to make sure they were coming um, it was part it was a team and um, you know they and and they testified on TV before the Senegalese but more importantly before the Chadian public about having been raped um, which was something that was very very difficult uh for for them. Um, but they all to, to a woman they they finished that experience and and it didn't at that point didn't matter whether he was convicted, he was acquitted, they had told their story. Um, hmm. and they felt like a burden had been taken off of them.
1: So Hissan Habre is found guilty and is sent to prison. How explain the the denouement of this story.
0: So um, the, on, you know, after a three month trial, um, uh, the judge convicts Habre sends him to prison for life. Um, uh, We knew, I mean, this, this was always going to be, from the, from the day he got in, he was trying to get out. Um, And of course he was a former head of state Um, and, you know, it was a very hard political sell for Senegal. Um, to prosecute another former, you know, African ruler. And there was a lot of, um, uh, uh, I know that there was a lot of lobbying from other heads of state um, to let him out. And we were continually assuming that he was going to get out. Um, uh, And again, he faked heart attacks. uh, You know, every couple of months there would be something. Um, But finally, um, he actually uh was uh, he he about a year ago um he was released uh, for to go to to hospital cuz he was he was ill and in and in and in, in, in a hospital outside of the prison a hospital a private clinic that he chose uh, he contracted covid and he died hmm. um uh so um and that was a year ago
1: i want to uh, expand this now to talk about the implications of international human rights, of holding leaders to account, to look at, um, first of all, to address that issue that you have raised, which is we're only holding leaders of the developing world to account. We're not holding Western leaders. Um, Where do you see that most glaringly, where we have failed to hold our own to account?
0: You know, I spent a long time documenting crimes committed against prisoners uh, during the so-called War on Terror. Um, Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib, secret prisons. I mean, we, uh, you know, George Bush, President of the United States, authorized torture. He authorized waterboarding. Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, um, put into practice and, 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 and Donald Rumsfeld oversaw Uh, The torture of a number of detainees. Um, There has never been accountability for that. And and when we tried to use the same principle of universal jurisdiction um, to file cases in in Spain and in France and in Germany, those countries were not willing to stand up to the United States. And those cases were all dropped. Um, At the International Criminal Court, um, you know, we see the same uh, double standards. And, I mean, right now in Ukraine, and, and I have to say, I am impressed by the, 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 the um, will of Ukrainians to use the law, um, how even as their country is being pummeled by this, you know, illegal Russian aggression, um, how they are documenting crimes, how they are out there, Um, And the international community in general, we have never seen such a massive response to atrocity. You've got um, the the International Criminal Court with its biggest office ever. You've got the Ukrainians who've opened up thousands of cases. You've got 14 countries that have opened up cases under universal jurisdiction. You have the the largest uh, interstate uh, uh, joint investigative team in Ukraine. That's great. That should be the model. But it's not. Um, uh, You know, you have uh, Palestine, for instance, where the International Criminal Court has an investigation where we see absolutely no progress. Um, The case, um, case, the the, the same prosecutor who is so active on Ukraine has dropped uh, cases, the cases against American um, or has has deprioritized cases um, of alleged U.S. crimes in Afghanistan, he says, for budgetary reasons. Um, you know, so w- I mean, we see, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, these double standards. Not, not, and and of course, Putin is is, is not a, a country, uh, somebody from the south. But we see really, um, you know, international justice really kicking into action um, only when it doesn't harm uh, Western states. And I, and I think, unfortunately, that is, you know, something that that is 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 is. is Delegitimizing and and calling into question the whole inf- the whole framework of international justice.
1: We hear with Ukraine often the um, you know pronouncements that these are war crimes and and such and that Putin will be held to account. Is there any chance that Vladimir Putin or anyone else involved in the war crimes, be, besides the lowliest foot soldier? Um, will ever face justice?
0: Well, these are war crimes. These are crimes against humanity. Um, Russia is also committing, certainly, uh, the crime of aggression, which uh, is important to say that in Nuremberg, aggression was considered to be the supreme international crime, the crime that paves the way for all the other crimes. But of course, after Nuremberg, the big powers didn't want aggression to be uh, justiciable. They didn't want a judge uh, to determine whether or not uh, their invasions were legal, and so that 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 crime was shunted aside, which is why the I, the International Criminal Court does not have jurisdiction in this case over the crime of of, of aggression. Um, the question, of course, is. Um, you know, whether or not how high up these investigations will be able to go. Um, Certainly, what we've seen so far is the arrest of, of, as you say, foot soldiers. One can assume that investigations will work their way up um, to higher level officers, either by showing that they ordered crimes or the well-established principle of command responsibility, that they were aware that crimes were being committed by their subordinates and that they didn't do anything to stop it. But of course, what, what the international community lacks is a, a police force um, that can go in and capture someone like Vladimir Putin. So even assuming that he's indicted for war crimes or for aggression by a special tribunal, which is being discussed, um, unless there's a radical change in Russia, uh, nobody is going to, you know, come in and arrest Vladimir Putin. Now, that said, these indictments will hang over his head all his life. And, you know, we we see in, in other cases like Cambodia and elsewhere that you may not prosecute somebody today or in 10 years, um, but maybe 20 years or 30 years. So these will always hang over his head.
1: You've been involved with the International Criminal Court in The Hague since its founding um, talk about the U.S. role in the International Criminal Court, which um, the U.S. does not respect the jurisdiction of the court. Is that still the case?
0: Well, it's it, you know it's a very complex. The U.S. is not a party to the ICC. Um, the U.S. Um, uh, objects to the principle of the ICC prosecuting. What are called non-state party re, nationals of non-state parties, like the United States, um, but the United States cooperates with the with the ICC under democratic administrations. Uh, I mean, under under Trump, the because the ICC has an investigation open in Palestine, and because the ICC had an investigation open in Afghanistan that potentially included American crimes. Um, the Trump administration actually sanctioned the ICC. The prosecutor and the high-ranking officials of the ICC were actually under American sanctions. Under Democratic administrations, the and, and the US war crimes ambassador is here in The Hague at the moment uh, at the uh, what's the annual assembly of, of state parties to the ICC, the US has a friendly neighbor policy to the ICC under Democratic administrations, even though it's not a party. Um, the United States, of course, objects now the, the, the ICC has jurisdiction over nationals of states parties, but also over crimes committed on the territory of states parties. So if an American commits a crime in Afghanistan, which is a state party, an American can be prosecuted. And the U.S. objects to that. Um, but the U.S. does not object to Russian nationals being prosecuted for crimes in Ukraine. So there's obviously, you see a clear double standard here. Now, um, we we one of the,
1: um, Jack Smith is a guy who yes. President Biden has just tapped to be the special prosecutor um, relating to President Trump and his taking papers to Mar-a-Lago and the January 6th. So he has been a prosecutor at the International Criminal Court for the last few years. And of course, the image we have of him is in these green robes, uh, in front of a court that most people have not heard of, so uh, do you have some? Do you know Jack Smith, and are you familiar with his work at the ICC?
0: I, I, I actually, the last couple of years, he's been at, at at the Kosovo Special Chambers. He had been at the ICC earlier. I don't know him personally, although I I speak to a lot of people here in the Hague who have uh, think very very highly of him, mm. um, uh, and that you know that he's a he's a very you know, good prevent. You know, it it's uh, prosecuting war crimes and prosecuting, um, uh, uh, you know, complex crimes tend to require the same set of skills. Um, working your way up to the top, um, you know, protecting insiders. I mean, all of these. But I should say, and and it's important to note that the International Criminal Court in twenty years. Um, and despite $2 billion, um, has actually never convicted st- any state official anywhere of anything. Um, and you know, I it, mean, it's actually, it's it, it's mind-boggling. I mean, they prosecuted five African rebels, but not even African state officials. So the ICC, this institution that, that I'm in The Hague for this meeting about, that's spending all this money, is actually not get convicted anybody? I think that's gonna change in Kosovo. The problem is that the, as I said before, the ICC doesn't have a police force. Um, So the ICC is really no match for a sitting government um, that controls its own territory, that controls its own crime scenes, that controls its own witnesses. Um, And so most of the ICC cases against sitting officials have crumbled because of the lack of cooperation from the state that's being targeted. Um, Now, in in Ukraine, the ICC actually has access to the territory of Ukraine, not the territory of Russia. Um, And so presumably some of these captured Russian uh, soldiers uh, in Ukraine, most of whom are being prosecuted before Ukrainian courts, some of them presumably will be sent to the ICC um, so that the ICC can, can chalk up a few wins. Um, But up until now, the ICC has actually never successfully prosecuted a state official.
1: That's astonishing. The cases we speak about, Pinochet, Hissan Habre, were not ICC cases.
0: That's correct. And what's interesting is that the cases that I've been working on, or that uh, my colleagues of mine have been working on, have been cases built from the ground up. So you see that the activists and indigenous people in Guatemala were able to prosecute the former dictator, Rios Monk. You see people act again, activists in Peru who are able to prosecute Fujimori. Um, you know, people who are doing this kind of universal jurisdiction work together with victims who are prosecuting um, uh, Syrians, Liberians um, around the world. Um, these are all cases being brought You know by people like you and me. I mean, by, by activists, by victims. Um, and it's a very different kind of justice. And it's also a replicable kind of justice. I mean, just the same way that the Chadians came to me and said, hey, we want to do what the Chileans did in Pinochet. When we were finished with the Hiss and Habre case, Gambians came to us and said, we have Yaya Jame. Can you help us do what, uh, you know, what the Chadians did in the Hiss and Habre case? And so this is a very different kind of justice. I think the ICC has to exist. I mean, a lot of, I mean, it, it, it's kind of that the, the, the the protective umbrella, the head, that you know the the centerpiece of this infrastructure um, that allows um, change to happen that that creates the norm uh, of international justice. The statute of the ICC has been transposed into in, into national laws around the world. Um, the Hiss and Habre case would not have been prosecuted without the ICC in the sense that the African Union really wanted to get the ICC off their backs. So they wanted to be able to show that African countries could prosecute African crimes in Africa. So the ICC is very important, the existence of it. But its actual record in convicting anybody, as I said, is zero.
1: So finally, read. You have had the experience of traveling the world and seeing, you know, states that have lapsed into authoritarianism and dictatorships. What is your assessment and feeling about the state of democracy in the United States
0: today? In the United States, you know, it's very interesting because one of my little sidelights is that I, because I, I, I live in Europe and I speak French and I speak Spanish, is that I actually do a lot of commentating on French and Spanish TV about American politics. Um, I am very worried uh, about democracy in the US. I was very happy um, that, you know, in 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 the recent elections, I I was very happy with the maturity of Americans. I think enough people, you know, they looked at crazy and they looked at normal and they chose normal.
1: They Um, chose
0: barely barely enough people 49
1: percent. joe's crazy
0: (laughs) yeah well you know all in all of those swing places where democracy as it were was on the ballot i think people over people you know they 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 overlooked gas prices they overlooked president biden's age they overlooked you know the normal trend in the midterm election then they voted for democracy and again it's yeah it's not It's a thin majority, and of course, we're we're in a situation. And I say this all the time. I mean, America, even formally, is not a democracy. I mean, the Electoral College, the way the Senate is set up, um, makes you know, is are are really anti-democratic institutions that are 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 a heritage of slavery. it is very different. I mean, we have a Supreme Court with an entrenched su- Republican, I mean, conservative supermajority for the next generation, um, and and I think it's going to require all of our organizing and all of our getting out to to you know to participate in politics um, to to preserve or to <laughs> at least to, to you know to reconquer um, our institutions.
1: Well, Reed Brody, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation.
0: Thank you very much, David. It's been a pleasure.